You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, we continue our series on John the Baptist with a message from Pastor Tom Wood covering John the Baptist's birth. Let's check it out. Oh, good morning, Word of Life. It's great to be able to come and be with you and hopefully share something helpful. I was um, on the phone this week with a friend of mine who's out of state, and um, we're just kind of, you know, talking back and forth, and he's asking me how church is going. And, you know, he said, what are you guys, um, you know, speaking on this Sunday? And I said, well, we're actually going to be doing a series on John the Baptist. And he's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, how's it going? And I said, I don't know if the church likes it or not, but I'm having a great time studying this. So um, if this is helpful, that's wonderful. But for me, I'm having a great time. So uh, hopefully the series gets off to a good start. So John the Baptist is a figure that we're looking at, and I've been in church for a long time. I've listened to a lot of sermons in my time as I've been following Jesus and sat in churches and heard different messages, and I can't remember a single time that I heard a message that looked at the life of John the Baptist. So I may have done, but it's certainly nothing that stuck with me, and it's certainly not something that's happened over and over again. So as I was thinking about this very interesting and very important biblical figure, I thought, you know, let's take some time. Let's look at the life of this man, and let's actually dig in and see why is it that this is somebody that Jesus would point to and say, this is the greatest person that's ever lived. We looked at that a little bit last week, but Jesus pointed to John the Baptist and said, this is the greatest person that's ever lived. So I don't know about you, but I take that as an indicator that this is someone that we should pay attention to. This is someone that's worth looking at. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at John the Baptist. And we kicked off last week by looking at three places in the Old Testament where the prophets wrote that God would raise someone up to prepare the way for the day of the Lord. That someone would rise up that would prepare for everybody, for the Messiah to come. Which means that hundreds of years before John the Baptist was even born, the prophets were writing about his ministry. They were writing about how God would use him in an extremely unique way. John would fulfill a unique mission to preach repentance and about the coming day of the Lord to the people around the Judean wilderness. It appears that John completed a lot of his ministry around the Jordan River, which is about a day's journey from the temple in Jerusalem. When he was there, he would preach and he would baptize people with water. At the River Jordan, John and his disciples would ceremonially immerse people in water to show their spiritual renewal. Despite being somewhat of an unusual man hanging out in the desert, he gathered crowds. People sought him out, including some of the religious leaders and the influential people of the time. John even recruited some people to be his disciples that would faithfully follow him, learn from him, and expect to minister in a similar way. One day, Jesus came to the River Jordan, and he asked John to baptize him. And as Jesus came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended on the Son of God, and the Father spoke and gave his approval and affirmation to Jesus. This moment would launch Jesus' public ministry, and Jesus would begin teaching about the kingdom of God, the need for repentance, preaching his message of love, and he began performing all kinds of miracles. After Jesus' baptism, John continued his mission, and after confronting the sin of King Herod, he was put in jail. Tragically for John, Herod had him killed while he was a prisoner. And we're certainly going to look at all of these events and all the things that make up the life and the ministry of John the Baptist in more detail in the coming weeks. But that's a nutshell of who John the Baptist is. I heard a joke this week about John the Baptist. Would you like to hear a joke about John the Baptist? Now, typically, my sense of humor is very highbrow, somewhat sophisticated. This is no different. Why were John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh friends? because they both liked honey and they had the same middle name. 
It's things like that that as people are leaving church, that's what they remember. <laughs> anyway, but John the Baptist had a mission. And his mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. This comes up over and over again. We certainly came up over and over again last week, and it will indeed today. And to prepare the way for somebody, as I was thinking about it this week and trying to sort of put an illustration to it, it, it's not like the opening act of a band. So if you go to a concert and there's an opening act, if, if the main attraction was not there, if the main act, the group you go to see was not there, the opening act could still have a concert by themselves. It's possible that you can go to a concert and conclude that the opening act is better than the main attraction. Some people, you might even buy a ticket primarily to see the opening act. This is not the case with John the Baptist and Jesus. The analogy that John chooses is that of a best man at a wedding. Now, there's lots of insight that we can draw from that analogy, but I think the most important is simply that without a groom, there's no wedding. Without a groom, the best man is completely pointless and utterly useless. That's the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. It's an important role as long as there's a groom. It's an important role as long as there's a wedding. But if there's no wedding, no groom, it's just some guy yelling in the wilderness. I want to start, uh, the scripture that we're going to start with today is in John 3.25. This is John as an adult as he's ministering. But read this in John 3.25. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, talking about Jesus, of course, is also baptizing people. And everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. That's how John viewed his ministry. That's how John viewed his role in world history. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friends is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. The New King James translates that verse, John 3.30, this way, he must increase, but I must decrease. John is confident, even comfortable with his subordinate role to Jesus. John understands that his mission is definitely not to be the Messiah, but to prepare the way. John's mission is to amplify and point people to Jesus. And we can see this even around the story of his birth, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. The story of the birth of John the Baptist, it builds our anticipation for Jesus. Luke, the author of this account, he sets the stage carefully by telling us the story of the birth not so that we can think highly of John, but so we can think highly of Jesus. The story builds an anticipation and appreciation for the Messiah that is about to be born just a few months after John. And for us, 2,000 years later, we should hear this account and grow in our appreciation for the power and majesty and wonder of Jesus. A part of John's preparation for the day of the Lord is that people would esteem Jesus in the highest possible way. And that's the lesson we should still be learning as followers of Jesus so that us as believers can have a true and accurate, magnified view of Jesus. Luke includes the birth of John the Baptist in his gospel. And the simple truth that we can see from this is that God exceeds our expectations. And that's the main thought for today. It's the main thing that I was able to draw from this passage that I spent a long time in it this week, is that God exceeds our expectations. And there's a lot of helpful things packed into this account of the birth of John the Baptist. But at its core, 
at its simplest essence. It's a story that shows us that God indeed exceeds our expectations. The births of John and Jesus are told in an intermingled way in John's gospel. Jesus and John were born only months apart. And we're here, and we're going to cover this in just a moment. But the first thing we hear is that Zechariah has an encounter with an angel. And the angel tells him that his wife Elizabeth will become pregnant with John. Then we see that Mary hears that despite being a virgin, she also will become pregnant with Jesus. Then Mary visits her relative Elizabeth while they're both pregnant. Then we have the birth of John. Then we have the birth of Jesus. And for us today, as we consider the birth of John the Baptist, how it all works to magnify Jesus, we're going to start, and the first passage we'll look at from Luke's gospel is at the end of the story. This is the end of the story where uh, the moments following John's birth, his father, Zechariah, your Bible might say Zacharias, it's just a different English translation, but the Holy Spirit inspires him to prophesy and proclaim some deeply meaningful things about his newborn son. So this is a part of what John's father, Zechariah, said on the day John was born. Luke 1, 76. And you, my little son, my newborn, teeny tiny baby, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. John grew up and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until his public ministry began. Now just reading those few verses, it's easy to feel the weight of what Zechariah has just said about his son. And as we'll see in the coming weeks and as we look at the life of John the Baptist as an adult, everything he has just said does indeed come to pass. John was a prophet and his whole ministry was built around preparing the way for the Lord. John taught people about how to find salvation, how to receive forgiveness of sins through repentance and baptism. But no matter what you may say about John the Baptist, it was always about Jesus. John was a prophet, but he pointed people to Jesus, not himself. His whole ministry was about preparation, yes, but preparation for what Jesus, the Messiah, was going to do, not what he was going to do. And though John could preach and teach people, he couldn't offer forgiveness of sins or give people salvation. But because God the Father, who sent his only son, humanity could experience forgiveness of sins and have eternal salvation. And there's a moment, this is a bit of a side note, but there's a moment in the ministry of Jesus when a group of people, they didn't understand that Jesus was God, that he was divine in nature. He wasn't an angel, not merely a prophet, but he was God. The eternal God became humanity when the son was born 2,000 years ago. And a group of people had no concept of this, had no idea that that's who Jesus was. And there were people observing Jesus' ministry. And without any understanding, they begin to object. Jesus starts telling people that their sins are forgiven. And the people that are hearing this know that only God can forgive sins and they take issue with Jesus saying this. They start to get annoyed and remind Jesus that only God can forgive sins, not realizing that Jesus carries that authority, that Jesus can forgive all unrighteousness. The authority to forgive sins, the authority to bring salvation is something that John never ever claims for himself. In fact, it's quite the opposite. This is further on in Luke's gospel. Luke 3, 16 John answered their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And as we all read today, he must increase, but I must decrease. So when Zechariah says, you will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins, his obviously means 
that you are going to point people to the Messiah because John definitely won't be pointing people to himself. As we look in more depth at the birth of John the Baptist, we can clearly see that this is all to help the hearers of the story grow in their anticipation and appreciation for Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah and Savior. And we're going to read the account from Luke's gospel around the birth of John the Baptist. And there's lots of fascinating things that we could pull out of this passage. But for us today, we're going to consider some of the ways that God exceeds expectations in this passage. So starting Luke 1 verse 5, we doing okay so far? All right, Luke 1, starting verse 5. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. Now, there's a few things to catch from this as Luke is setting the scene for what's about to happen. The first thing, and this is worth noting, is that he's placing this in real history. He's not starting this story with once upon a time. He tells us it's when Herod was king of Judea. Now, like the rest of biblical history, this is supposed to be read as accurate and factual. This is supposed to be read as a real honest-to-goodness report of what happened historically. If something in the Bible is to be read as an allegory or a parable, the author doesn't give details that ground things in historical reality. But here, Luke is careful to tell us when this happened. This is something that happened. And Luke, as he opens up his gospel, he's careful to tell people, I'm gathering this from eyewitnesses. He's writing this and saying, this is something that happened, and it is so accurate, you can go verify it if you want. And we're told that Zechariah is a priest, and just as importantly, we're told that both him and his wife Elizabeth are good people. Now back then, not having children was seen as missing out on God's blessing. But we had to make no mistake, Luke is careful to make sure we don't make the mistake to think that these are terrible people with awful hidden sins in their life and terrible things that they should be ashamed of where God's anger is against them. He is careful to make sure we know these are good, honorable people. But they're at the point in life where they're too old to have children. Verse 8, one day Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. As was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. While the incense was being burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. Now, there's something here that may not be obvious to us as modern readers. The responsibility of the priests at that time was to fulfill their duties two days a week in the temple. Some estimate that at that time there were as many as 18,000 priests ready to fulfill their duty. There were a number of responsibilities that the priests had to tend to. Most commonly was overseeing the sacrifice of the animals. But Zechariah is chosen by lot to go into the holy place, the sanctuary, and burn incense. Now, casting lots, as best as the historians can figure out, is along the lines of rolling dice. And it was an Old Testament method of making decisions and trusting that it was the Lord who determined how the dice fell. It's also worth noting that after Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit comes on the believers, there's not a single mention of lots ever being used again, but that's a message for another time. But here, the lots determined that Zechariah would go into the holy place to light the incense. Now, if you ever Google um, an image or an overview or a bird's eye view of the temple, this is obvious to see. But essentially, the temple, the way that Herod had it at that time, there were layers to it. And each layer, it kind of got holier and holier, if you will. So the first was the general courtyard, and anybody could go there. The first layer, anybody could go there. And then you kind of go a step further, and at that point, you couldn't enter the next space unless you were Jewish. And then there was another space where you couldn't go there unless you were a Jewish male. 
And then there was another space where you could only go if you were a priest. And then there was the sanctuary, and this is where Zechariah would be serving. And then within the sanctuary, there was another one that was the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go in there one time a year to make a special offering on Yom Kippur, one time a year. Zechariah was serving in the sanctuary or the holy place. But Zechariah, he's going to be ministering in the room that's adjacent to the Holy of Holies. Now, burning the incense is something that a priest could only ever do once. If the lots fell and they should be the one to fulfill the task, this was the only time in their entire life they would ever do it. For many priests, the lots never fell for them, which means it was a great honor and most certainly the highlight of his priestly life. Here, for the lots to fall on Zechariah, for him to go into the sanctuary, the holy place, and burn the incense, he's fulfilling a -a once-in-a-lifetime responsibility. The only thing between him and the Holy of Holies, where the Lord's presence dwelt in an incredibly unique way, the only thing between him and the unique presence of God on earth at that time was a single curtain. And in this very special moment, for an old priest who's been hoping this moment would come his whole life, the whole thing takes a turn. Verse 11, when Zechariah was in the sanctuary doing this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this highlight of his ministry, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now and my wife is also well along in years. Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It is, me who sent, uh, it is he who sent me to you to bring this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. When he finally did come out, he couldn't speak. Then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service at the temple was over, he returned home. Soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went in seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Now, in the greatest moment of Zechariah's priestly career, the moment's hijacked by an angel. And this is a dramatic example of God exceeding expectations. What was expected to be the highlight of his life as a priest, this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve in the temple in a prestigious way was blown out of the water by what happens next. An angel appears and tells Zechariah that he's about to be a part of something of historical significance. Now, Zechariah, he responds in a typical biblical way. Firstly, he's terrified of the angel. And secondly, he tries to convince the angel they've got the wrong person. If you know the Old Testament, you'll know that is the pattern of how people respond. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Now, it's worth asking, what's the prayer that God has heard? From the story and just kind of reading the narrative as it naturally unfolds, it reads as if God is answering the prayer for a child. 
Now, this couple are desperate for a baby, and certainly we should assume that they have been praying for a baby for years. But we shouldn't forget that Zechariah is a priest. Part of being a priest means it's his responsibility to pray for the nation. It's his responsibility to pray for the coming day of the Lord. God is essentially answering both prayers at the same time. He is giving Zechariah and Elizabeth a son who would prepare the way for the coming day of the Lord. Another example of God exceeding expectations. We also see that Zechariah, as he argues with the angel, the angel declares, okay, you can't speak until the baby's born. I was telling Megan about this this week and relaying how Elizabeth and Zechariah meant that Zechariah was unable to speak for the duration of her pregnancy. He was unable to speak for months at a time, at which point Megan says, Lord, if you did it for Elizabeth, you can do it for me. Zechariah, he goes outside later than expected. And Zechariah's responsibility as priest is to go outside and pronounce a blessing on the crowd that had gathered. As part of his responsibility was to go and declare a blessing for everyone that was waiting eagerly for him. Many of the people that made up this crowd had traveled great distances to come, be a part of worship at the temple, to make sacrifices and receive a blessing. The blessing that he was supposed to declare over the crowd was from the book of Numbers, where it says, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. But instead of receiving this blessing, spoken by Zechariah as they were expecting, he comes out and somehow from his gestures, the crowd's able to figure out that he must have been a part of a vision while he was ministering in the sanctuary. Possibly uh, another priest declared the blessing that day. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that a crowd of people went home fully aware that God had spoken to a priest in the temple that day. What did they say? We don't know. What does all this mean? They don't know. What would happen next? They don't know. But they knew God was at work. That he was still involved with his people. That he is still fulfilling his promises because a priest had a vision in the temple. They were expecting a blessing. They went home fully aware that God was on the move in Israel. I love that what we just read from Luke says that Zechariah doesn't go home immediately, but it records that he finishes his week of service. But when he does get home, he somehow communicates all of this to Elizabeth. Now, I would love to know how on earth he communicated this to his wife. I mean, honestly, how on earth did he let her know what was going on? It could have been a writing tablet. We hear he uses one of those later on, or maybe it was the world's best game of charades. But sure enough, God's word comes true. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. Now, I want to consider from all that we read from Luke's gospel and just that quick review I shared with you, consider the different ways that expectations were exceeded. Zechariah expected that fulfilling his priestly responsibilities in the sanctuary would be the greatest moment of his life. But then he gets a visitation from an angel, and an angel bringing promises. Not only does he get the promise of a miraculous son, but this son would go on to be the forerunner of the Messiah. His son would play a significant role in the redemption story of the world. The crowd outside the sanctuary are expecting a blessing. Instead, they learned that God was on the move in a significant way. They may not have had the details, but they knew God did something amazing in the temple that day. For Elizabeth, she expected Zechariah to come home, only to then get the news that would be the best news of her life. With all this in mind, the first point I bring out of this passage is that God exceeds expectations for his plans and purposes. 
God exceeds expectations for his plans and purposes. God is at work in human history. He's committed to bringing humanity forgiveness and salvation through his son. And if anything, from this account of Zechariah in the temple, we can see that to fulfill those plans, he will exceed anyone's expectations. He is at work in a much greater, far more significant way than we can comprehend. He will bring about his plans and purposes, and there is no possible way for you and I to figure out how he's moving and how he's working it all together. Out of all of this, what I found myself most amazed with is that God was answering the prayer for a baby and the prayers for the nation all at once. To pray for the nation as a priest is a massive global historical request. It's a prayer that's on the largest scale possible of all the things to be praying for, to pray for God to move in a national way, for God to move worldwide is the biggest kind of prayer you can pray, that the whole world would see the promises of God unfold. This is a big, big prayer. And then there's the prayer for a baby, a prayer that concerns just one family, a prayer that is just one husband and one wife coming together, believing God. God responds by, by answering both the small prayer the concerns and the heartache of one couple and the prayer for a whole nation and a whole globe of hurting people all in one motion. That amazes me that this one, deliver, this one promise fulfilled started, the, the, it was the forerunner of the Messiah coming and the world would never be the same again. Also in the passage, there's a number of callbacks to the Old Testament. The most obvious is a woman who has been unable to have a child and yet they miraculously get pregnant. This is seen frequently throughout the Old Testament. We have Sarah, Abraham's wife, who becomes pregnant with Isaac. Massive promise, old in years, becomes pregnant. We also have Rebecca, who couldn't have children. Rachel had problems having children. Samson's mother. Hannah, the mother of Samuel. There's also a lady that Elisha ministered to. The recurring theme of a woman who's unable to have a child, but miraculously conceives, is a consistent sign that God is moving his promises forward. In that regard, Elizabeth is in strong company. This whole narrative is told to elevate Jesus. When Elizabeth conceives, it's remarkable and worth celebrating. And it brings to mind all that God has done in the great people that were born to parents that couldn't naturally have children. But when Mary conceives, she's a virgin. Elizabeth, it's amazing. It's a miracle, like the miracles we read in the Old Testament. But Mary, she's a virgin. Now, Joseph acts as a caregiver, and he helps raise Jesus, but make no mistake, Mary conceives a son by the Holy Spirit. God is his father. That's new. That, that, that's new. John the Baptist, well, that puts Elizabeth in great company. There are great heroes of the Old Testament that were born when they had no natural means to be born. But this whole thing with Mary, oh, that's new. That's not a story we've heard before. There's no precedent for that in the Old Testament. This is new. By this way, this miraculous birth, this miraculous conception of John the Baptist only helps accentuate how amazing it is that Jesus would have the virgin birth. Another obvious callback is the angel. Gabriel is mentioned by name in Daniel around 600 years before this. Zechariah had the typical response to seeing an angel being fear and being stunned by what was going on. There's also similarities with Abraham and Sarah. Zechariah and Sarah both respond with disbelief and doubt when they're told you're going to have a child, whereas Abraham and Elizabeth both responded with joy and excitement. Abraham, Sarah, Zechariah, and Elizabeth were all too old to have children naturally, and the promise of children was also loaded with promises for God's plan of salvation, and all of it required patience. 
And that brings us to the second point. God exceeds expectations, and it's always worth the wait. God exceeds expectations, and it's always worth the wait. Staying faithful and committed to God's promises is an underrated quality. Patience has never come naturally. Modern people especially, it's in short supply. I was reading just this week that there's an online company that's seeking clearance from the FAA to fly a fleet of drones to deliver packages to people. The promise is that if they can get these drones off the ground by having a bunch of drones dropping packages at people's front door, it will mean same-day delivery for online orders because next-day delivery is way too inconvenient, apparently. Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth were all old when the promises of God were fulfilled in their lives. They all had to persevere and endure. They all had to show incredible patience. We all get frustrated and saddened at life But please don't make the mistake that disappointment today is a sign that God will not accomplish his plans. But instead, we should learn from the example of Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, that it's worth the wait. Carrying on in verse 39. A few days later, Mary, who's also pregnant at this point, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Now, as we've already read, Elizabeth was part of a miracle of her own. Of course, the story of Jesus and his birth is an entirely different miracle, but Elizabeth is part of a miracle of her own. I think a typical response to being a part of something as miraculous, as incredible as Elizabeth was, would be to be precious and guarded about the whole thing. We would want to enjoy it. After years of waiting and praying, it finally happens, exceeding expectations in a dramatic fashion. We would want to enjoy it, and we wouldn't want anything to prevent us from celebrating. We wouldn't want anything overshadowing our big news. It's kind of like if we had a promotion at work and we were celebrating. It would be annoying if somebody said, oh, it's my birthday tomorrow. It takes the shine off of the promotion. Or if you were celebrating an engagement and then someone announces at the party that they'd gotten into grad school. Or if England finally win the World Cup and then the Americans want to talk about the Olympics. (laughs) It bothers us to have a big moment undercut when we should be celebrating something good in life But then the attention goes somewhere else. We had an example of this on our wedding day. Some good friends of ours came up to us and they very quietly kind of pulled us to one side and then kind of like whispered, hey, just so you guys know, we're pregnant, we're having a baby. But we're not gonna tell anyone because we don't wanna ruin your day. Which was very kind of them. But this kind of thinking of, I don't wanna overshadow someone's big day. I'm going to keep the news of my pregnancy to myself. I'll tell the bride and grooms. I want them to celebrate, but I don't want to overshadow their day. I think that's normal. But that's not what we read from Elizabeth. In fact, we see the exact opposite. Elizabeth's got her own news. She's got her own reasons to want the spotlight on her. She's got her own reasons to want to celebrate and to be annoyed when anyone is taking the attention off of her and celebrating what God has done in her life. But instead, we see the baby leaping with excitement and being filled with the Spirit. It's a reminder that John is not the most important baby in the room. She's not trying to jealously protect her moment. Elizabeth's miracle 
was a part of something much bigger than just her and Zechariah finally having a baby. Just like Abraham, when Isaac was born, it was the fulfillment of a promise, and his birth led to much bigger promises being fulfilled. In the same way, John the Baptist being born meant that the forerunner to the Messiah was going to begin preparing the way. And this brings us to point number three. God exceeds expectations because he's always working on something bigger. He's always working on something bigger. God doesn't work in a vacuum. Megan and I have had to make decisions and have conversations where the only thing that matters is the well-being of our children. As parents, you've been in that conversation or you've had that meeting as well, right? For other people that are around the table or on the call or in the meeting, they may have different priorities than you. But the only thing you care about as parents is your child and them being treated properly. But of course, God, unlike us, is working on a much larger canvas. We are consumed with what's immediately around us. But there's so much more going on. It's normal and natural for Elizabeth to think that her pregnancy is the most important thing that's ever happened to anyone ever. It's normal and typical for Megan and I to be annoyed that someone would steal the spotlight on our wedding day by announcing they're having a baby, which, thank God, did not happen. Until we realize that anything that God does in our lives is a part of something much bigger. My responsibility is to be faithful with what he's put in front of me and to be mature enough to see that this is all a small, tiny piece of something much bigger than I can understand. As an adult, we've already read today that John was comfortable being subordinate to Jesus. If we don't live up to John's example, we can become prideful, jealous, guarded around however God is moving in our lives. We can even make idols of how God has worked in our lives. The antidote is remembering that the Lord is working in a much bigger way. And the story of our lives is only ever going to be a tiny part of his story. Would it have been completely outlandish if Elizabeth became snobby and boastful with the other moms in the neighborhood? I mean, it's cool you have a newborn, and he's cute, but did an angel visit your husband in the temple? Did you get pregnant in the same way that Sarah did? Does your son have a promise to prepare the way for a Messiah? But that's not what we see from her. We see a humble understanding that anything good, anything worth celebrating, is only ever a small part of glorifying Jesus. As excited as Elizabeth must have been at the pregnancy, this miraculous pregnancy that she was a part of, she was joyful to declare the wonder and majesty of Mary's baby. She didn't fight her way to the spotlight. But from what we can see in the text, she enjoyed playing a support role. She understood that her joy and her miracle exceeded her expectations and was a part of something much bigger than simply her finally having a baby. Verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth's baby to be born, she gave birth to a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had been very merciful to her, everyone rejoiced with her. When the baby was eight days old, they all came for the circumcision ceremony. They wanted to name him Zechariah after his father, but Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. What, they exclaimed? There is no one in all your family by that name. So they used gestures to ask the baby's father what he wanted to name him. He motioned for a writing tablet, and to everyone's surprise, he wrote, his name is John. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. All fell upon the whole neighborhood, and the news of what had happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what would this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Now, the moment of John's birth is the fulfillment of a miracle. 
The meaning of John's name is God is gracious. The parents insisted that they follow through on what the angel told them. His name is John. The parents insisted in that. And John means God is gracious. Of course, the greatest demonstration of God's grace would be Jesus. The ultimate embodiment of God's grace will be found in the message of the cross. It's also at this moment that Zachariah speaks again after being stricken with silence. A good question for us to ask is, what happened in the silence? The last thing Zechariah said to the angel was, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now, and my wife is also well along in years. But then, when he's able to speak again, this is what Luke writes. Instantly, Zechariah could speak again, and he began praising God. The last thing he said was filled with doubt, uncertainty, negativity, questioning God. And then when he can speak again, he's filled with praise, wonder, confidence, and hope. In the silence... Zechariah had a heart transformation. His doubt was turned to confidence. His fear was turned to a longing to see the promises of God fulfilled. Verse 65, awe fell upon the whole neighborhood and the news of what happened spread throughout the Judean hills. Everyone who heard about it reflected on these events and asked, what will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was surely upon him in a special way. Fourth thing, God exceeds expectations and people will notice. People will notice. When God exceeds expectations, there is no way to keep it to yourself. Stories spread. What are the kind of stories that spread? Well, here at the church, we have a private Christian school. There's over 100 students that are there. About one third of those students do not come from homes that have a connection to any church, any kind of faith background, but they come to our school. God starts moving in those teeny tiny little hearts and those little minds. My gosh, that's a story worth spreading, having a child's life turned around. In youth ministry, when a teen has a radical life change, parents notice. When God restores a marriage, people talk. When an addict finds freedom, people pay attention. When people have reasons to give up after suffering tragedy, but they keep putting one foot in front of the other, people see that. When someone's life is filled with dysfunction and chaos, but fast forward a year and they've straightened out a whole lot of things and they've got a significant mindset change, people notice. People talk about these things. And when people talk about things, it brings questions. People will want to know more. The stories spread. And with the story spreading comes people wanting to hear more. This verse from First Peter came to mind this week. If someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Be ready to tell your story of God moving in your life. Be ready for people wanting to know what happened. Be ready for people fighting the same fight you used to fight, coming and wanting to hear from you. Be ready for people to be amazed at how God has exceeded expectations in your life and they want that hope for themselves. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were old by the time that we read about them. And the account of their son's birth is the last time we read about them in the Bible. But I completely expect for the, for, for the rest of their lives, they were constantly asked about all that happened in the temple that day. They were constantly asked about what happened when Elizabeth and Mary met. They were asked about the birth of John. And I'm sure they told and retold that story over and over. And just as I'm hoping and believing that God exceeds your expectations, 
that you see him exceed your expectations in your life, I hope you're ready to tell the stories of his goodness over and over because people will ask. God has chosen to fulfill his plans and purposes through people. This means he's at work in our lives, operating behind the scenes in ways we cannot comprehend. What might be a blessing for you could have an unknown impact on others. For Zechariah, ministering the temple, like that it would have been the greatest priestly honor he could have expected, but God had greater plans. We can't plan for an angel to visit, or we can't plan for a red sea to part in front of us, or we can't plan for a Goliath to fall. All we can do is live committed to be faithful with whatever is in front of us. Zechariah and Elizabeth were good people who loved God and faithfully served Him. I want to see the miraculous in my life. I want to be astounded by the power of God. So the challenge is to be faithful and obedient with what's in front of me right now. Remember that seeing God's promises fulfilled is worth the wait. I'm sure there were times of great despair as Elizabeth and Zechariah went year after year without a baby. But don't you think it was worth the wait? I mean, I'm impatient with anything. Like now is always the right time for anything. But this isn't like waiting for a package to arrive. This is something emotionally charged. This is significant and important stuff. Waiting can be annoying when it's unimportant stuff. When it is important stuff, when it's significant stuff, the waiting is upsetting and even devastating. But the commitment to persist and endure is one of the most underrated qualities that we see celebrated in the Bible. Very often, we're attracted to the flash and the blessings and all the stuff. But I think that we need to embrace simple endurance more. That our faith, our relationship with God is going to be what drives our life. That our commitment to Him is going to be unshaken in every season. We should remember that God is working on a much bigger canvas. This should fill us with confidence. It may explain why we're waiting and having to exercise this patience. In my experience, we can only ever get a glimpse of how God is working on the much bigger canvas on a much grander scale by reflecting or by retrospect. We can look at John the Baptist's life and we can see how his impact is truly remarkable. But there's no way for Zechariah and Elizabeth that they could have ever understood while they were praying for a baby for decades that they were going to be blessed with a baby boy that would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Let's take the time to think through the different ways that God has exceeded our expectations and try and recognize the ways it demonstrates how he's working on a much grander scale than we can even begin to wrap our heads around. And we should be ready for people to talk and ask questions. The story of John's birth, that story spread. I hope that God moves in your life in such a way that people are talking about it. I want us to take Peter's advice and be ready to give an answer when people ask, to be ready to retell the story. If God is moving in our lives, it will strike a chord with those around us. If God is exceeding our expectations, people will have questions. And I've seen it over and over again. When God moves in someone's life in a powerful way and they tell the story and people keep asking about it, the people who hear the story and the people that keep asking the questions, they find hope and faith in Jesus for themselves. It's all throughout the New Testament, church history and in my own experience. God exceeds expectations for his plans and purposes. God exceeds expectations and it's always worth the wait. God exceeds expectations because he's always working on something bigger. God exceeds expectations and people will notice. I've got a couple of questions. If you're in the habit of taking notes, I invite you to write this down. If you're not in the habit of taking notes, this is a great time to start. 
A couple of things to think about this week. Pray through, maybe talk to someone about. First question is this. When have you seen God exceed expectations? When have you seen God exceed expectations? Second thing. What are you expecting from the Lord right now? Today, we're talking about Him exceeding expectations. I want that for you. I want that to be in my life just as much as I want it to be in yours. But it's worth recognizing, what are you expecting from Him today? And by expecting something from Him, by expecting Him to move, let's be ready to see Him exceed those expectations. When have you seen God exceed expectations? What are you expecting from the Lord right now? Now, I don't know if I've ever done this before. If I have, I don't remember when. But I want to invite everyone here to stand. I've got one final passage of Scripture I want to read, and it's what Zechariah, John's father, prophesied and declared shortly after John was born. And the words are going to be on the screen. I want everyone here to pray this together, to say this. And hear what is it that John the Baptist's father was prophesying and declared? What is it that the Lord inspired him to say shortly after his son was born? And we're going to say this out loud together. And I believe that by saying it out loud together, we're going to encourage each other to take these words to heart. We're going to make this personal by declaring it out loud together. So come on, everybody. Would you read along with me? Starting verse 67. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through the holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy. The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. Amen. In that passage we read together, we heard about a mighty Savior. We heard that it was promised long ago that we could be saved, that we could serve God without fear, that we could find salvation, that we could find forgiveness of our sins, that God has tender mercy to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. John's whole mission, his whole ministry, was to point people to this Savior that is talked about here, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That was John's mission, to find Jesus. And I believe that same mission is relevant for you and I today. You may be here, I don't know your life story, I don't know what circumstances behind bringing you to church today. You may be here every week, this may be the first time you've ever been to any church anywhere ever, but you're here. And I believe that if you're here and you're unsure about what you think about this whole God thing, that something happened today that has got you thinking, you know what, this Jesus thing is for real. There is a God that loves me and his love is proven that he would send his son to pay the price on a cross 2,000 years ago. 
that I can know freedom, that I can know a healed relationship with the Father, that I don't have to live wondering if God is out there somewhere, but I can know that He's close and I can have a dynamic relationship with Him. I want to give an opportunity to anyone here today that you're unsure how you and God are. Are you good? Are you in good relationship with God? If you're unsure today, I'd love to pray for you so you can leave here today confident that you are in step with God, that you have a healed relationship with Him. So I want to invite everyone here, if you mind just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. This just to give privacy to those around you so that we can focus on what really matters right now. But if you'd be honest enough to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start. I want to put my trust and my faith and my confidence in Jesus. I want to make a commitment to follow Him. If that's you today, I'd love to pray for you. If you could just put your hand up just so I know who I'm praying for. Wonderful. Amen. Anybody else? Amazing. Thank you. Wonderful. Anyone else here? I promise I won't do anything to embarrass you. You're not going to do anything that you're going to regret on the way home. But if this is you today, I'd love to pray for you. And we all pray together. I'd love to know who's included in that prayer. Anyone else here today? Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Let's celebrate with those people making the best decision today. Amen. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer together. The words are on the screen. We do this at the end of every service. And if you're one of those people that put your hand up, I want to ask you to pray this with passion, believing that prayer like this is the power to change things. So come on, everybody. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody, let's celebrate one more time with everybody. Amen.